Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Со двора подъезд известный под названием Черный ход В том подъезде, как в поместье, проживает черный кот Он в усы усмешку прячет, темнота ему, как щит Все коты поют и плачут In every podcast, my co-host Kevin Rothrock or I talk to an author about their new book on Russia or Eurasia. In this episode, I spoke with Karen Petrone about her book, The Great War in Russian Memory. Historical studies on the European memory of World War I are, to put it mildly, voluminous. There are too many monographs to count on a myriad of subjects addressing the acts of remembrance and commemoration of the so-called war to end all wars. But when it comes to Russia, from which 15 million men fought, 2 million died, 5 million were captured, and an estimated 1.5 million civilians perished, there is a strange historiographical silence. In fact, historians of Russia speak more often of of an absence of memory, because the Bolshevik Revolution labeled World War I as an imperialist war, and thus rendering its remembrance illegitimate. It is because of this silence that Karen Petron's The Great War in Russian Memory is such an illuminating and refreshing book. Petron shows that much like their European counterparts, Russians produced a rich memory of the war, even within the strictures of the Soviet system. And the issues that memory addressed were many, we assume, were forbidden in Soviet Russia, the sacred and the religious, Russian nationalism and patriotism, and the war's physical and psychological traumas, to name a few. In Petron's study, Russia is rightly restored as part of a pan-European reckoning with the Great War, the remembrance and commemoration of which was far-reaching and impossible to tame, despite the Bolsheviks' best attempts. For more, here's my interview with Karen Petron. Hi, Karen. Hi, Sean. How are you? I'm fine. Welcome to New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies, and thanks uh, for joining me to talk about your new book, The Great War in Russian Memory. Uh, just to start off, why don't you tell me about yourself and how you came to write a book about the memory of World War I in Russia? Well, it's a, it's a long story. It goes uh, back to when I was still a graduate student at the University of Michigan. I was commissioned by Billy Melman to write an article on World War I posters. She had, was doing a book on gender in World War I, and she didn't have a Russian piece. So she asked me to, to uh, supply a Russian piece. And I worked with the posters from the Hoover Institution and discovered all these very interesting uh, tropes about masculinity and family and nation that were all tied together. And that had some connections with the work on uh, Soviet culture that I was doing from the 1930s for my book on Soviet celebrations. And so I became very interested in this. And I decided that I was going to work on soldiers' memoirs and masculinity as my second project after I completed the celebration project. And uh, you talk a little bit about, you know, how, how it became broader than masculinity, though, I mean, because you cover so many topics. 
Yeah. Well, well, here's the thing is it, it became it became simultaneously broader and narrower uh, because what happened was I started reading memoirs and being a good chronological person. I started at the beginning and started with World War One. And I began as I began to work with World War One, I, I realized how rich the material was and how much else was going on in these memoirs than just uh, issues about gender. And, and became I became interested in themes of religion and violence and so forth. And I and I discovered these World War One memoirs and kind of got stuck there because I thought, this is really rich and interesting. And then um, I was asked to uh, by a, a, a friend of mine to give a paper at the Modernist Studies Conference, and that had to be about literature. So I gave a paper that really focused on uh, Quiet Flow as the Dawn, Sholokhov's novel. And it dawned on me that A, I shouldn't limit myself to memoirs because there was this incredible uh, culture about World War I in the interwar period. Uh, and two, that really what I had to do was focus only on World War I, but do it broadly through all of the, of the Soviet media in the interwar period. And that's how the topic came to be. Wow. You know, and that's one of the things that really strikes me um, is the real richness of your source material, especially since, as you say in your introduction, that, I mean, this book is a really long time coming. It's amazing that um, so much has been done in Europe on issues of memory in World War I, but in Russia has been absent. And partially because, as you say, historians have assumed that there's an erasure of memory. Why has this been the case? And yet you find all of these very rich sources. Well, I think I think the first thing uh, that happens is people, and I think this is is uh, typical, really, is that people very often believe what the Soviet state says about itself. Um, and the Soviet state said, World War One is not important. We're not going to commemorate it, um, and we're not going to archive it. In you know, we're not going to give it a special category. Um, and the result of that, of course, is that it's very it, this material is not obvious. You know, it's it's. It's on the back burner. It's on the margin, uh, but it's there in a, in a rich amount. And because people have accepted the notion that there was no commemoration, because there was no official commemoration, they haven't looked for this for for a sort of broader Soviet culture of commemoration and memory uh, that exists not not entirely outside of state memory, uh, but really alongside it and as part of it, but not as the center. Mm -hmm. And you 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 note know that repeatedly that there is a real tension between the Soviet state kind of wanting or facilitating the commemoration of World War I in some respects, but at the same time having to keep the line that it, there is no official commemoration. Um, now, one of the things you do, though, is you say that you really connect the Russian memory of the war to the broader pan-European memory. It's not just the, it's Russia is part of this larger tradition. Um, why is it important to put it in this broader context? And, you know, there's been a new historiography of, of thinking about, say, Peter Holquist's book about framing the Soviet Union within a pan-European uh, discourse, within pan, within pan-European trends, and not isolating the Soviet Union uh, as, a, as a, a special case. Um, and so I think this is, this is sort of the, the intellectual background to what I'm trying to do. Uh, but what's really interesting is that you t it turns out that if you look at this memory of World War I, it really does parallel what's going on in Europe. There are all kinds of debates in Europe, and there are similar kinds of debates uh, within the Soviet Union in those first two decades. And what's particularly striking is the, the um, extent to which the Soviet memory embraces uh, this questioning of war uh, that we do see in some other aspects of the European memory. Now, mind you, Europe itself has a divided discourse that, you know, that valorizes and uh, rejects war. Uh, but what's quite interesting here is that in the Soviet case, this World War I memory tends, at least in the first decade and a half, uh, to uh, undercut 
the idea that war is a solution to problems. And this goes directly in, in contradiction of the Soviet idea that the only way that, that war is inevitable and that revolution is going to take place through war. So you have this really alternative discourse that's that's sitting you know, in Soviet society, allowed, allowed to be there uh, for a, a fair amount of the time uh, and really undercutting some of the central tenets of the Soviet state policies. Mm-hmm. And one of those things that you, I think, one of the real interesting chapter is like in, in the European case, in Germany and France, you, you, you've discovered that there is a great spiritual and supernatural dimension to the war's memory. Uh, how was the spiritual articulated, um, especially in the context of Soviet atheism, right? We assume that if because of the, an atheistic state that's really hostile to religion, you wouldn't get this in texts about World War I. And this, you know, this was this was one of the this this book is full of a lot of surprises. It was the things that were surprising to me uh, as well as I went along. Um, and and this this fits with, I guess, the broader questions about continuity versus rupture, because if you look at the World War One discourse, the large question is always was World War One a huge rupture or really are there deep continuities? And if you look at the work of Jay Winter, he's essentially making arguments about tradition and continuities going through uh, the war era into the uh, post-war. Um, and here that really is, in effect, what I found. I mean, the the, the you know, Russia in 1917 or the Russian Empire in 1917 was a profound profoundly uh, religious sort of place. And maybe maybe not necessarily always institutional religion, but spirits and, and ideas about the soul and ideas about God were very, very powerful in late imperial and then through, uh, the, through World War I. Uh, and so it turns out that even when people are being communist atheists, they've, they've imbued some of this, this spiritual thinking. Uh, and so it goes right into the Soviet period. Uh, and and that's uh, you know something that was quite interesting to note. Mm-hmm. And you also point out too, there's this kind of like, you know, they have to in some of these texts they d- damn religion, of course, but it, through the damning, they're still engaging with religious ideas to a large extent. Yeah, and here here I think it's I think the the early Soviet uh, uh, propagandists or or uh, ideologues understood the power of religion. Um, and in some sense, they were shaped by it, too. Uh, and so they they sometimes try to take it head on, you know, take it on head on. They want to try to debate it, uh, like when they planted godless acres and and, and that uh, had fertilizer versus the godly acres blessed with with uh, uh, holy water. You know, when but when they take it on, I don't I don't think they can win very easily. Uh, and so so they, in effect, reproduce the discourse that they're trying to eliminate. Uh, as as they're going through, and what kind of spiritual um, I don't know issues that uh, soldiers who are writing about the memory of the war or other commentators and what do they speak about and how do they connect spiritualism with the war? Well, there there are a couple of pieces. Of course, one one is the the issue of the afterlife. Right you know, here, you are facing death. Uh, you know what do they say? There are no atheists in foxholes. This is a you know this is a sort of a a, a an aspect of that problem, right? That how do you explain to people what their motivation should be uh, or what their reward should be for facing death in, for their nation? And this is a problem that the Soviets have to deal with because they too want a loyal military. Uh, and so, so some of this question is how do you frame uh, sacrifice uh, with or without an afterlife? Um, and so a lot of the, the memory of the war is about, you know, sort of trying to shape that question of, is it really, if we die in this war, we're going to go to heaven or we're going to receive a spiritual reward or, or is it just, you know, if we die in this war, that's the end of us. Yeah, I actually have a, um, 
uh, a bit about some of the things I've looked at. Uh, 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 a book that was published in 1921, which is a necrology of 300 Komsomolci who were killed in the Civil War. And one of the things it says is that they didn't sacrifice themselves to uh, religion. They sacrificed themselves to a higher madness of revolution. It's kind of still very spiritual um, articulation. So that really communicated to me. Now, one of the things, of course, as you, as you already kind of mentioned, is that death and remembrance are really central themes to war. Like, how does one deal with the, the prospect of death, the dead, but also how does one continue to remember them? And I was really struck in your discussion of um, uh, Alexei Brusilov's funeral in 1926. Uh, talk about this. Who was Brusilov and, and why is this funeral significant? So uh, Alexei Brusilov... Uh, was uh, the uh, leader of probably the most successful offensive uh, during the uh, Tsarist World War I effort. And this was the breakthrough at Lutsk in, in 1916. Uh, he very nearly, well, according to his own lights, very nearly manages to get Austria-Hungary out of the war, but the other generals don't don't follow up and he loses the opportunity. Uh, so he is a, uh, he's a military, a Tsarist military war hero uh, of the of the highest, you know, of, of the most significant kind, uh, and then he joins uh, the uh, Soviet army during the uh, Russo-Polish War in 1920. Uh, so he is one of he's a unique figure, prominent in the Tsarist military, but then also prominent in the Soviet military. When he dies in 1926, uh, he he has a funeral, and he is uh, and a very devout Orthodox believer, uh, and so he wanted to uh, he had you know his wishes were to be buried. Uh, in a in a in Novodevichy Monastery with all of the Orthodox rites attendant to that, uh, and I was able to find the description of this funeral, and it turns out that the Soviets want him. You know, the Soviet military leaders want a an official Soviet funeral. His wife wants an official Orthodox funeral, and so they do both uh, at the same time. And it's really fun to read this description about how they you know sort of organize it so that the the um, parts of the funeral are taken care of with the, with the priest and with the official ritual, but the priest can't accompany the cortege to the to the cemetery because he, they can't be seen in public with the priest but as soon as they get to the walls of the cemetery uh the soviet uh, you know sort of military band stays outside the cemetery and people go in the cemetery and have essentially an orthodox funeral and remembrance of brusilov uh, so it sort of shows this this um uh, really, the stature of Brusilov that his family's wishes were were met to this degree, but also the way in which the, the Soviets want to have it both ways. Uh, they want to they they're willing to close their eyes to this as long as nobody else sees it. Yeah, and it also suggests too a larger thing. I mean, to me, it it issues of they're here they're caught between the old and the new, and you can't really discard the old. You have to kind of you know compromise and, and deal with in some ways. But also that what you mentioned in your description now issues of space how they can't enter into the church; they stay outside or vice versa. It's a really interesting uh, commentary on on the 1920s in general. Yeah. And, you know, and there's, you know, it's even even funnier to that, to the point where they, they do the 21 gun salute. Right. But they're they're given the signal from inside the, the cemetery. OK, time to do the 21 gun salute. And then from outside, they do the 21 gun salute. And then they're anxious that the monastery not ring its bells. Right. Because if you ring the bells, then you're calling attention to the fact that it's in the monastery. So, so it, it was a very, um, uh, you know, the, the very hybrid nature of it demonstrates uh, the way it demonstrates continuities across the um, revolution and the ways in which the Soviet state is trying to negotiate all of this, uh, uh, all of these, the, the continuities and the, uh, 
uh, changes. Uh, one of the notable things, of course, that the um, Orthodox ceremony uh, ends with the chanting of you know the words "eternal memory," and this is a these words are embraced by the Soviets as long as the eternal there is not related to God, uh, but related to the service to the to the revolution, the service to the higher purpose that you were talking about earlier. Now, one of the other themes you deal with too is issues of gender and particularly masculinity, which is always central to war. Um, and how it's understood, how it's represented. I mean, issues of the, the front being masculine and the rear being feminine and all these kinds of gendering different positions in the war. Now, talk about about the kind of masculinities that were represented in, in the memory of the war. Yeah. And, you know, here here I think it's really important to understand that there is a kind of uh, traditional hegemonic military masculinity that define, you know, defines honor in very particular ways that are fairly standard across time. You know, the, the good, you know, sort of soldier is heroic in battle, not afraid to die, uh, all able to, uh, you know, sort of effectively kill the enemy, but only the enemy that is wearing a uniform, not, you know, sort of not abusing women and children or, or, uh, or civilians, right? So there's a, there's a kind of tradition out there uh, and then, then when you get to the Soviet uh, representations of the war, they have to deal with that tradition, and so they they um, you know they attack some of the you know, jingoistic jingoistic czarist uh, rhetoric about the war, uh, exemplified in the Cossack Kazma Kruchkov, uh, who uh, it was one of the heroes that was constructed at the beginning of the war by the czarist propaganda machine, uh, and uh, they really challenge uh, his. It, they challenge his status because they don't want to accept his heroism. Um, at the same time, uh, the Soviet state doesn't like anybody to be cowardly, right? So, so you have so the 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 um, uh, it's very difficult for them to to frame what the good soldier should be, uh, because fighting for the czarist uh, government is not good, but not fighting for the czarist government. Is <laughs> Uh, so, so you, so you have a, a you, they have it. They're on the horns of a dilemma there, um, and they never quite satisfactorily uh, answer how this is going to work uh, in the in the early part of this period. And so, and so, all of these uh, representations of czarist soldiers are contradictory because courage. If they are courageous, then their courage is misplaced. Right. It's, it's for the tsar and and not for the class or for right. the revolution. Exactly. But then again, retreating or uh, or giving up your weapon or willingly becoming a POW, these are not very attractive options either. Right. So so the, there are a few uh, soldiers in Mars that do talk about their surrender. Um, but it, it's it's a very ambivalent kind of thing because surrendering as a POW is not a very heroic or revolutionary act either. Right. So so it just doesn't it, they these that's part of the reason why World War One discourse is so interesting is that you can't narrate it uh very clearly, given the condition, given the situation that the czarist, the Soviet state was in in the 1920s and 30s. Yeah, and I would imagine even issues of comradeship between classes, between officers and soldiers, are also uh, um, because you know the front is a the the trenches are also a great equalizer in a lot of respects, and so is the front. And right. uh, so you do have instances. You mentioned some of these of of soldiers and officers, you know, having good comradeship relations to one another. And this is, of course, is anathema to the Soviets. Right. Exactly right, and and yet these things turn up. You know, these the, the decent officer turns up in canonical Soviet literature, like uh, Sholokhov's *Quiet Flows the Dawn*. Not every officer is horrified, horrible, horrible in that work, and that really demonstrates some of the ambiguities here too. Is that if you recognize that some czarist officers are good, that sort of sets your ideology on edge. Uh, 
but at the same time, uh, in order to to represent war, one you know one has to incorporate some of this because some of it did happen. Now, one of the interesting arguments you make in terms of masculinity is, and this is contrary to some other scholars, is that it actually war destroyed masculinity. Um, and in what ways did did war do this? Well, uh, these World War One memoirs really are uh, very uh, graphic uh, in some sense. They are they do document the costs of war on men's minds and bodies. Uh, and uh, I'm particularly thinking here of Kirill Levin's work, uh, which is his diary, his memoirs of being in a, um, a prisoner, prisoner of war camp in Austria-Hungary. It's called Zapiski's Plena. Uh, and it was republished many times in the late 20s, early 1930s. But he details how war robs uh, men of their masculinity, sometimes quite literally. Uh, he writes about a, um, a man who is who loses his genitals in the war and the, the terrible case that he's he's in. And he's praying you know, hopelessly uh, for the restoration of his body, but it's not going to happen. Uh, and so that's the kind of, of, you know, sort of poignant moment that you see that war is not this fantastic heroic thing, or at least the, the possibility that war is destructive of male bodies and male identities is, is present in this discourse. Also, he talks about what we would call shell shock. Uh, he talks about, uh, in basically, you know, a good portion, maybe 10% of the whole memoir, he talks about men who go crazy uh, because of the war. Um, and they are unable to they are unable to to deal with what they see in the war. Uh, and as a result, they, they lose their minds. Um, and so there's a, a case of cannibalism of a, of a soldier who is left in the trenches with a dead body and becomes insane. Um, another soldier who uh, is they try to force he's Jewish himself, the soldier, and they try he, they, the other soldiers try to force him to rape a Jewish woman. Um, and he and he loses his ability uh, to understand what he's doing. And he thinks he's in the court of law. Uh, trying to defend his victims. Wow, wow. And and another thing too, I mean, the fact that you cite some of these statistics that there's an estimated, I mean, uh, 1 million uh, war invalids, uh, a high percentage of them actual being maimed in, in amputees. I mean, I've seen statistics about a 1 million, it could go up to 2 million. So the Soviet state is also dealing with the reality of this. Um, so it's, it's, it's interesting that it also comes across in other places where we think there'd be a silence. Yeah. And there's an amazing, one of the most amazing pieces uh, uh, that I read was in the uh, memoirs of Dmitry Furmanov, uh, who writes about seeing some of these am amputees that are basically just stumps on a railway platform, men who have been reduced to stumps on a railway platform. And he sees a scene where the wives of these men don't want to take them home. And they leave them and, and they are abandoned uh, and, and put in a workhouse. And this is the kind of gender dynamic that I had you know, very easily imagined that the criticism would be on these women for abandoning uh, the men. And in fact, uh, Fordmanov supports the women and says, of course, they should leave them. They, if they took those men home, that would destroy their lives. Right, right. You also cite this one chilling uh, part of, I forget what the source is of a, a, on a train, also on a train platform, where they're saying, somebody says, you know, we're sick of these invalids and wants to toss them off the train. Yeah, right. That's that's in uh, Isaac Babel's 1935 play, Maria, yeah. as, as a work of fiction. And so indeed, this, this you know, this this question of, of the destruction of male bodies and what to do with them uh, is played out in these works. Mm -hmm. And there needs to be much more research on, on what's actually happening to the invalids because uh, there are, there are a few things. There's a dissertation by Vincent Comercero, uh, but really the question of 
what's happening uh, to these people who were maimed not just in, in, in World War I, but also in the Civil War uh, during the 1920s and 1930s really deserves more um, attention. Yeah, especially, I mean, it's such a cataclysm of the two wars and the Civil War and, and the fact that the, throughout the 1920s, it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's surprising what's been overlooked, I guess. Well, for that matter, uh, the plight of Russian POWs has not been very well, you know, right been very well studied either and that would be you know and it's very important work that just is is yet to be done um another central theme of course and it's indicative of war is violence and killing um and and how did the memory deal with these two things yeah and and here it's quite interesting uh because the the it does the memory does deal with uh to a large part the the conscience of the warrior, the, you know, how does the warrior feel when he's committed violence in, in war? Um, and, you know, from the official sort of Soviet military point of view, if you're thinking about, you know, sort of Soviet military discourse, uh, soldiers should just be absolutely fine about killing the enemy in battle. This is what they have to be prepared to do. There should not be any, uh, uh, you know, as Lenin put it, mawkish snivelers, uh, who don't want to, uh, 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 fight, uh, and who are unwilling to kill. Um, but yet there's this huge, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, many different references to uh, various kinds of religious pacifism and pacifist discourse. Uh, of course, there's a very tr- strong Tolstoyan streak uh, through a lot of this. Um, and then there's also um, just the sort of musing, you know, you have, you have characters in novels musing, uh, really heartsick about the fact that they've had to kill. Um, and, and this is true for people that they've killed in ordinary uh, uh, battles and not just people that they people that they might have killed outside of the official sanctions of war. Um, and so that is quite interesting that there is this reflective discourse about the, the cost of, of, on the soul of, of killing. Mm-hmm. Now it's interesting too, the way that the Soviets, one of the ways the Soviets deal with, with especially violence against civilians, viol- ethnic, inter-ethnic violence is to figure the Cossack as one of the central perpetrators of this type of, of violence. Why Cossacks? You know, that's a really interesting question, you know, and it gets back again, you know, to some of the work that, that uh, Peter Holquist has done on, on, there seems to be, despite the fact that, that they're supposed to in the Soviet Union, not be this ethnicization uh, of, of people. And of course there, of course there is, uh, but, uh, we see it later on, you know, certainly during collectivization, with their, where ethnicity really plays into the kinds of uh, purges during collectivization and 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 decolonization. Um, but in in the Civil War, uh, Peter Holquist points to the fact that the the Cossacks are identified as as in an ethnic way very early on, and and you know even uh, moving toward issues of ethnic cleansing. And so this is a this is a way in which uh, this is visible in the literature that Cossacks, by nature of their Cossackness, somehow seem to be more inclined to the kind of violence uh, that is uh, viewed as very negative. I wonder. I actually wonder about the deep historical roots of this too, and the fact that you know throughout the the early imperial period. I mean, here I'm talking about the 15th, 16th century, and into, into the the fact that the Cossacks are on are always on the periphery of the empire. Um, they're also the revolt. Some of the, the the armies in the time of troubles are are full of Cossacks. Um, of course, Pugachev, Stenka Razin, and Pugachev's rebellions also have Cossacks. So the, I, I wonder if this kind of long historical view of them them as kind of unruly people 
uh, plays into this too. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think also, you know, I think there's a kind of ethnic component to that and that they're unruly people and they're ethnically mixed people, right? right. I mean, they're kind of, you know, sort of the, the uh, uh, there are, are they, they are constantly mixing with people of the borderlands and reshaping themselves as they go along, right? Uh, and so I think that that, that that definitely has a very long-term uh, uh, history, uh, but that the problem here again, like many other things in the Soviet Union, what's interesting is it's very contradictory to the official line of what's supposed right. to be in the literature, uh, and that's that's always quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a- another big contradiction in terms of the discourse is the place of nationalism and patriotism, because <clears throat> of course World War One soldiers. Uh, are fighting for you know essentially God and country, um, and 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 sacrificing themselves for their nation, but the Soviets of course can't have a difficult time dealing with this because if you say oh people were dying for Tsar and country, then this suggests some kind of you know anti-class anti-revolutionary position. So how did how was national identity, nationalism, and patriotism dealt with? Right. Well, one of my this is one of my favorite you know sort of. Uh, cliches that turns up in this literature is they talk about the noxious fumes <laughs> of, of chauvinism uh, and and what happens to to you know, the the standard narrative is this is what happens to soldiers at the beginning of world war one they're 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 caught up they're basically high on these fumes <laughs> of, of nationalism they can't you know they can't help themselves because they're not really thinking about it uh, but as soon as they get involved in the war then then over time they become more sober uh, <laughs> and, and they, you know sort of realize that they should be killing their officers and not the uh, not their not the the workers on the other side of the border. Uh, so it's very interesting the way that it's framed. It's almost as if these soldiers can't help themselves and then they need eventually they gain consciousness and they realize that their their intoxication uh, was wrong. Um, so that's the that's the way the mythology works. But of course in reality um, one of the things that I think is interesting is the con- continuity of, of of national tropes throughout this period. Um, and here uh, you know, it's easier to see what, how they got picked up again in the middle of the 1930s if you can understand that, in fact, they never go away. That really the idea of the nation and, you know, sort of mixing of the Russian and Sovietness all together uh, is quite evident in some of the uh, materials uh, that, we, uh, that we have access to about World War I. And so even if some of these materials attack uh, the uh, chauvinism, of, of the imperialism, the chauvinism of the czar state, uh, others of them recognize the sort of heroic nation as an important concept that 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 people respond to. Yeah, and here it's a similar dilemma with the masculinity question, right? Because on the one hand, you don't want heroism for the Tsar isn't good, but you don't want your own troops to give the idea that not being heroic is is you want people to be heroic, and the same thing you want people to die for their country and die for I guess the Soviet nation, for lack of a better term. So it is they are again caught with this in, in issues of war. There there seems to be some kind of universal themes you want to uphold. Um, but their their ideology seems to, to get in the way in many cases. Yeah, yeah. and and they're you know very often they're playing both sides against the middle, right? You know, and they they're trying to trying to figure out how to how to import you know sort of some of this mobilizing rhetoric uh, without necessarily importing the idea of uh, uh, national chauvinism. Now to go back to something you, we we started with in the beginning, and that is. And this struck me repeatedly through reading is is really the richness of your sources, and I think readers will be re- also struck, especially those published in the Soviet era. 
now, now we know that there is censorship and we know that there is efforts by the state in a variety of ways to kind of control the discourse. Um, talk about the ways the Soviet state tried to control and shape efforts, not only in representations in media, but also in organizations and citizens' efforts to commemorate the war. Well, there, there are, uh, you know, this is one of the, the interesting, you know, I, I, this question of periodization, you know, and here I, here I follow Katerina Clark when she tries to think about this as an ecosystem, right? There are all kinds of really interesting ideas that are floating around in the Soviet 1920s. And while there is censorship, censorship is much more pointed you know, is much is much is much more focused on you know sort of anti-Soviet remarks. So if you're writing about something that's not anti-Soviet, the the what you can have in broad censorship uh, is is much broader. Um, and this begins to tighten up in the first half of the 1930s. And I actually am able to demonstrate what themes disappear and when. Um, and and I can sort of see a purple purposefulness in it uh, to the point where when I looked at compared various editions, I started to be able to predict what was going to be missing. Um, and so, you know, so, so, so you sort of do see this kind of, you know, as the, as the, the 30s wear on. And again, not entirely, because some of these themes do continue all the way through to the Second World War. So it's not a total uh, erasure. It's a, you know, substantial erasure. Uh, but, but what you do see is that the Soviet state is so anxious about militarizing that all of this material that questions militarization begins to disappear uh, quite, uh, uh, quite systematically. And the um, and em the embrace of religion also disappears quite systematically, uh, although not entirely. Right, even in the 1930s, there are, there's there are novels about World War One that wax lyrical about religion. So so it's it's a very uh, interesting. Uh, that's why I like the the notion of ecosystem because what you have are some of the uh, flora, you know, sort of really growing well, and a few of the others being kind of choked out, but they're not they've not disappeared entirely. And what about some efforts by civic groups and organizations to right. commemorate? Absolutely. And, and this is, you know, this is quite interesting. There are lots of, of civic groups in the 1920s. For one thing, the State Historical Museum tries to put on a, you know, a war exhibit. Um, and they are, uh, it's, it's extremely clear that there is a, a good deal of infighting in the Commissariat of Enlightenment. Um, and that there are some people uh, who are in favor of allowing the State Historical Museum to, to use the military trophies that were collected uh, during World War I to create a military museum um, in order to go ahead and do this and allow them to, to create a museum. Uh, on the other hand, uh, there are forces who say we shouldn't be celebrating the czarist war effort. Um, and so they do end up setting up an exhibit. It's short-lived. It's only, it only lasts for a couple of years. But the effort of creating this exhibit it demonstrates, in fact, that the State Historical Museum wants to reflect czarist military history from, you know, from the beginning to all the way up to World War I and give Soviet citizens an account of that history as part of a um, you know, as part of the narrative of where the Soviet Union has come from. Um, but then there are other voices within, and, and by the way, the, the Soviet military establishment is very much in favor of this kind of a museum exhibit. Um, and so the Red Army, uh, you know, the, the Red Army newspaper, Red Star, uh, is, um, is very uh, supportive of the efforts of the State Historical Museum to create this museum, uh, to create this sort of military uh, exhibit. Um, and then, but within uh, Narkompros, there's so much uh, infighting that eventually the um, the exhibit is uh, is stopped. The exhibit is destroyed. Everything is dispersed or put back into um, storage. Uh, and the 
and they're actually fighting over the museum space because it happens to be in a very good location, right? So you can sort of see how bureaucratic infighting, uh, as much as this ideological question, uh, did did shape what was going on in the 1920s. So the, there are these efforts that begin, and then they are stunted for a variety of reasons. There was a massive publishing, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, agenda. Uh, of among the in the Red Army's commission for the study of World War One or the study of the World War because they didn't know it was World War One, <laughs> um, uh, but but uh, this was a, a commission that had you know set out a very elaborate agenda of collecting documents, collecting archival materials, publishing them systematically, um, and they you know 1929 they put out this you know really strong agenda of a you know 12 or 14 volume history of World War One. Uh, and this does not come to pass again because of uh, changes in the Red Army leadership at the top, uh, issues of, of uh, bureaucratic infighting, uh, and also uh, the changing, you know, sort of notion of what the what the Soviet military establishment should be focusing on. So these so these are institutional uh, institutional infighting that really uh, puts to puts to a stop very strong efforts to really uh, look at the war in a systematic way. Yeah, I thought I found that a really interesting this effort. There is there is efforts to commemorate, but it gets entangled with a whole bunch of other things going on, leading to its kind of suspension. Right, and and that's true. Even you know, in the the it, when you look at the destruction of the of the uh, the cemetery uh, in Moscow, the all Russian war cemetery, uh, you see that there are up through the end of the 1920s civic groups that are trying to preserve the cemetery, um, and then you see that they you know they apply. To, you know, they apply for money for fencing, you know, in order to protect the graves and protect everything. And the, the Moscow city says, nope, too bad. We're just going to let the kids in the neighboring school overrun the cemetery. Uh, and, you know, and so you have this you have these sort of very interesting moments where there are indeed institutional and personal uh, commitments to uh, to uh, keeping the memory of World War One alive. Uh, but they run into even stronger institutional impediments. Now, another surprise that I, I, I learned, and, and this, of course, really connects Russia to this pan-European um, thinking and memory about the war, and that is the publication of, of All Quiet on the Western Front in Russia. Um, why was it published, and, and how was it received, and how did this reception change over time? Yeah, this is this was one of the. I, I think this was something that surprised me too when I when I first uh, discovered it because I I was mentioning to my Russian friend, you know, well when World, it was the All Quiet on the Western Front was translated in 1929, she said, oh no, it wasn't. It was translated in 1959. I was like, no, it was translated in 1929. Um, and and so this this whole episode seems to have you know sort of got disappeared from the consciousness of of you know contemporary Soviets. Um, well, it turned out that if you think about socialist realism. Uh, one of the things that they were aspiring to, you know, so again, this is before the, you know, writers union is created. Uh, they were aspiring to clear prose that would simply tell the story of the common man and, and, and his and his trials and travails. And the thing is that Remarque's novels so well fit the the bill for what what the ideal socialist realist novel might look like uh, in terms of discussing the you know, discussing the plight of the soldier during the war, that the the that Soviet uh, uh, readers were Soviet, you know, basically opinion makers embraced it, even though they recognized 
uh, that there were some pacifist influences and that he and that in the end, the, you know, uh, Paul Bomer doesn't make the revolution, which was which was to them a, an unfortunate um, ending. Uh, he dies rather than making the revolution, rather than becoming a revolutionary seems like a shame to them. Uh, but they nonetheless, uh, uh, they nonetheless recognize in the novel something that they're aspiring toward in, in, in imagining what a good Soviet novel would look like. And so they translate it, they put it in the they, you know, put excerpts in, in Soviet journals. Uh, they translated in large, uh, in, you know, 100,000, you know, uh, copy uh, translations. Uh, and, and they are very enthusiastic about the novel, at least until uh, Remark publishes the second piece of it. Uh, because in The Road Back, he explicitly rejects the revolutionary ideas. Uh, and then they, then all of a sudden, the novel is no longer uh, everybody's favorite, uh, and he's called a bourgeois pacifist, and he's, you know, sort of rejected. But the thing is that in the meantime, people have been reading the novel, they've been embracing it, and they're very, very, uh, they're, they they recognize it and, and identify with it fairly strongly. Mm -hmm. And what year was the last pre-war, pre-World War II edition published? Yeah, I, I think that the, the, it comes out in large quantities in 29 i think to 30 and 31 and then after 31 it's you know it, it's not um it's not republished but it's also for the most part it seems to me it's on the shelves uh it runs into trouble in 1937 when one of the editors is uh arrested um and very often that meant that books had to be pulled off the shelves but the the uh, copy that i was using in the lenin library just had the name of the editor who had been killed uh, uh erased with a black marker right <laughs> so, you know so you you know so you you there is a kind of uh um uh there's a kind of way in which one wonders i mean it's very difficult and this would be something that i would love to do more research into but i don't know how exactly uh to figure out you know what became of the copies of the novel you know how long was it a how long did they stay around before they had to be essentially destroyed or before they really disappeared from from libraries uh, but nonetheless, it's very clear from letters written to the publishing house in the middle of the 1930s that people are reading it all the way through the 1930s. Now, when you look at um, World War One memory in Russia in the mid to the late 20s, and then and then what it looks like or your evaluation of it in the mid to late 30s, what changes and even continuities do you see in the kind of broad spectrum of the memory? Yeah, I think there's really a, a sort of dramatic change. Um, and the reason, it, and again, it's not entire, it's not total because there really are things that are in the later period that, that you could see in the early period and vice versa. So it's not a total change. Uh, but it's very clear that in the second half of the 1930s, militarization becomes much, much more important. Uh, and so they begin to look to any anything that they can do to show uh, that the Soviet Union is ready to fight its opponents. And certainly after the, after the rise of the Nazi state in, in 1933, um, they are very acutely aware that that opponent might be Germany. Um, and so they're even more eager than they were before to find places where the Soviet Union fought successfully against Germans. Um, and, you know, hence Sergei Eisenstein's Alexander Nevsky is a really perfect example of this, right? And, and in that period, there begins to be a kind of rejection of anything that smacks of pacifism, rejection of anything that suggests that war isn't the, you know, greatest thing since sliced bread. Uh, you know, that there's a, a way in which uh, it is a remilitarization, a reheroization, remasculinization. These are the these are the terms that I use in the book. Um, and uh, so it very clearly 
harkens back to the kinds of uh, heroic tropes that were, were very evident in the czarist uh, period. Uh, in fact, the, the, um, uh, one of the first documents that when I was doing my book on celebrations, uh, one of the first documents that I uh, found or that I, I realized was important was a, a theater critic in 1939 named Blum, who was complaining. He said, hey, we shouldn't be writing in 1939 the way we were writing in 1914. <laughs> There's something wrong here. <laughs> and, and that was that, you know, that that always stuck in my head as something I was like, well, gee, this is very interesting because that that discourse at the end of the 1930s is replicating and reproducing or thinking through the czarist discourse in certain kinds of ways. But uh, so 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 I, I became very interested in what was going on in the in between those two things. And turns out that that there that there was a challenge to that discourse that by 1939, the Soviet state is trying to you know fight off. Um, and you get you begin to get uh, one good example is Brusilov, right, the the uh, the general who's who's had this very successful breakthrough in 1916. Uh, they start in the mid 1930s writing about this breakthrough as the Lutsk offensive. You know, they you know talking about it, but not or or in a story called Breakthrough. You know, never mind who was in charge, right? Uh, and then all of a sudden, around 1939, as they really become anxious in the first half of 1939, uh, really in that period uh, edging up to the Hitler-Stalin pact, you can sort of see this anxiety and suddenly Brusilov's name reappears <laughs> and it's called the Brusilov Offensive. <laughs> uh, and, and suddenly, you know, the, the idea of the, the good Russian general who could fight successfully against the Germans becomes, uh, a, you know, is allowed to be spoken again. The name is, you know, the name is returned to the discourse. And certainly this is then when World War II breaks out after the Germans invade, uh, Brusilov becomes a very important figure uh, in the uh, World War II propaganda. And there are biographies and plays and stories all about him. It's interesting because it, if you think about the foundational events of the Soviet system, you know, revolution, which in a way it's not all of that dramatic. They have to kind of create the drama. At the Civil War, yeah, there's a lot of heroism drama you can create out of that, but it's also against your own people. But it's only until World War One where they have the big foundational event of defending the nation against the external enemy. So in some ways, it, it's 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 interesting, but that they they ha they're kind of forced to pull from the SARS period in this sense to look for you know where do we fight Germans? Well, it occurs you know in the prehistory of the revolution, um, and they have to account for that somehow. Um, now, considering. The World War One, and and anyone, as you well know, if you go to Russia, or if you even pay any attention to Russia, the memory of World War Two is dominates. It saturates um, public commemoration. I mean, every year it's a huge, huge deal. Um, where does World War One stand today, given this? I mean, even from 1945, given this deluge of World War Two memory, and more importantly, what does it teach us? Yeah, it, you know, it's really interesting. Uh, uh, Catherine Meridale, in, in her book on uh, uh, death and memory called Night of Stone, she does these interviews with people and she asks them what the most important wars in the 20th century are. And they don't even mention World War One. She, she asks these uh, people in the early 1990s. Um, and, and, you know, one of them refers to World War One and, and says, oh, that <laughs> it's really it's, it's really not in consciousness at all. Um, and I think, uh, you know, even educated people are a little fuzzy on World War One when you ask them about it. Um, so I would say in contemporary times, it is not a major um, uh, concern, although 
um, it, with the 100th anniversary coming up, I do think there's going to be a little bit more attention to it. Um, and there was a memorial park opened up to World War One in Moscow on the site of that all Russian oh, uh, really? cemetery. Yeah. And and so so there is this there is a memorial site. There is a memorial uh, church there, a very small one, a little chapel. Uh, but the the interesting thing is that the memory of World War One gets very entangled with the memory of the Civil War in that the question that the people who really wanted to uh, commemorate World War One were people who really also wanted to commemorate the whites. Uh. So they're seeing the continuity between the czarist officers uh, from uh, from pre-1917 and the white movement. Um, and so from the very beginning that when they created that memorial in the 90s and then and then they redid they included more things in 2004, um, it, it was very contentious because people who were uh, people who were being memorialized were people who had fought against the Soviet state. Um, and so it turns out that there's a lot of left wing vandalism of the site and the church itself is even vandalized in 2001. Oh, wow. Um, so so it turns out that, that this memory of World War One is contested in part because people are a little fuzzy on World War One, and in part because the way that it does get get back in is get back it gets connected again to the white movement, and even the the it turns out also that the church that's right next to this memorial site uh, is a it was engaged in valorizing people like the uh, the uh, soldiers who'd fought for Vlasov during World War Two. So there are all kinds of sort of proto you know sort of pro fascist or or pro white elements. Uh, revolving around this desire to commemorate World War One in the contemporary period, and that you know that creates a sort of un, uh, uncomfortable feeling about it. Uh, and since people aren't really keen, uh, aren't really clued into it for the most part anyway, uh, it really puts it in a very ambiguous place in the contemporary moment. It will be it will be really interesting what they do in 2014 because one of the things I, I see in in the Putin system is this attempt to really reconcile the imperial and the Soviet period. And and this perhaps could be one of those points in which how how World War One is treated at least on an official level how they try to say concretize that continuity. Yeah, I think it's going to be very very interesting, and I you know I would like to you know sort of try to follow it and see what you know see what's going on. Uh, there's there were some plans, and now I'm not clear on this because I haven't looked into it recently on having a World War One museum in the old Leningrad movie theater in Moscow. Um, and because that's on the same site as this World War One cemetery was, uh, uh, I see. Uh, and so, uh, and so, it's extremely, uh, you know, it'd be very interesting to see where that's going. When I was last there, there was doesn't didn't seem to be anything doing uh, in terms of building a museum. So I don't know exactly where the, uh, you know, what's happening. But I would like to research that a little bit more. Yeah, those are certainly interesting develops to follow, especially as I said. I mean, World War One has just been kind of pushed aside for so long, and for it to make any kind of public return. And how it's treated would be a good commentary on on the present, if anything. Yeah, I think that's right, and and I would be interested to see how Putin treats it because on the one hand, I mean, you know, the czarist the czarist army doesn't do that well, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's what <laughs> is very important because you know he is the one you know czarist general who seems to have some some military success, right? So so it's very awkward. Right? I mean, if, if if there weren't enough contradictions, how do you celebrate the the you know the failed war of a failed government, right? It, you know, if, you know, if it were a successful war, I'm sure that that the Soviets would have picked up on it even more, you know, all along, uh, and and uh, and that Putin would be really engaged with it. Uh, but because it is ambiguous, it it creates the revolution, or at least you know some people would argue that the revolutionary circumstances are coming out of the war. 
uh, it's you know it demonstrates the failure of the czarist military, the failure of the of the state to be able to mobilize. So you know how do you you know how do you remember that in a way that works well uh, for a contemporary nationalist project? It's a very interesting question. Right, right. Well, we'll we'll have to stay tuned to see. Um, well, the the Great War in, in Russian memory is a really I mean fascinating and as I said a long time coming book. I mean, as far as I know, this is really the only treatment so far, at least sustained treatment of, of World War One memory in Russia. So I certainly thank you for that. Um, just to wrap up the interview, uh, what are you working on now? Well, what I what I would like to do, and again, I, this is only in its very incipient uh, stages, uh, I, I would like to, in some sense, write a bookend um, book um, on the end of the Soviet Union, uh, where the focus would be on the war, with, war in Afghanistan. Uh, and essentially try to sort of take up, since part of my, since it turns out that a large part of this book is about the closing down of the possibilities of discourse about World War I uh, in the, you know, sort of middle of the 1930s. Uh, what I'd like to do is look at the uh, Afghan war and particularly in the context of perestroika and then the fall of the Soviet Union and then the rise of Putin and, and try to read through the you know, sort of changes and opening of discourse and the possibilities for what one can say about war uh, in that milieu, uh, starting with starting with the, the invasion in, in, of Afghanistan and kind of going through to the present. This is a very big project, and I have not, you know, really, you know, sort of gotten my teeth into it at all yet. Right, right, and it will be interesting actually. Look at say, you know, when the when the Chechen war really flares up, how the 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 Afghan war, the memory of the Afghan war, comes back, and and how it comes back to really understand what they're doing in Chechnya. Yeah, yeah. Sergei Ushakin's book does sort of some of this in the in terms of his his you know kind of doing the oral history of the veterans and and for you know the way that he you know he does kind of frame it with the Chechen war and the Afghan war you know so he's looking at how those things fit together and so that's that's a really uh, interesting model or a question to look at what goes on you know sort of in that in that um, uh, conjuncture. Um, but I think, you know, I do think that the uh, I really like the idea of doing a sort of the whole sweep of it. Right. So that so that that is definitely going to be one of the episodes in the in the sort of larger question of how the how the idea of the Afghan war changes over time. Well, I hope it's uh, I hope it, it gets some speed and you'll uh, finish it as fast as possible. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll do my best. <laughs> OK, well, thank you very much. Right. Thank you for, for inviting me to speak. I've been speaking with Karen Patron about her book, The Great War in Russian Memory. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Once again, I'm Sean Guillory, your host for New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies. If you're interested in hearing more interviews by the New Books Network, please go to newbooksnetwork.com. And until next time, goodbye. <laughs> 